Duke's Mayo. Do you get it? Because only the ones that get it really get it. Your friends get it. Your mom gets it. Your grandma gets it. Your neighbors get it. Sometimes a dog gets it. Get out of there. What else? Uh, your potato salads get it. BLTs get it. Tailgates get it. And restaurants get it, too. By now, even you probably get it. So get it today. Made without any sugar since 1917, Duke's is that little southern something that makes good things better. Get Duke's. It's got twang. Patrons heard this episode first. All of our patrons get a shout out in the episode, one bonus episode per month that's Patreon only, and they get to hear our episodes one day early. You can become a Patreon too by clicking the link in our show notes or head over to patreon.com slash the murder diaries pod. For this episode, we'd like to give a big thanks to SS Toga for becoming our newest Patreon bestie. Again, hit that link in our show notes or head over to patreon.com slash the murder diaries pod. We can't wait to see you there. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. Imagine answering a knock at the door and being met with a barrage of bullets. That's what happened to 24-year-old Alicia Canales McGuire on September 20th, 2017, as she was babysitting her sister's three children. Evidence indicates the ambush was intentional. However, Alicia had no known enemies and... Only a handful of people knew she'd be at her sister's home that night, leading investigators to theorize Alicia may not have been the intended victim in what was now believed to be a botched murder-for-hire plot. This is her story. You still think it's in my head But I'm walking with the dead Alicia Michelle Canales McGuire, known as Punky to her nearest and dearest, was born and raised on a farm in Mount Vernon, Washington. Loved ones describe her as a go-getter with a big personality and a good heart. Her obituary recounts how she learned the value of hard work early on in life by rolling up her sleeves and pitching in on the farm as young as five years old. As an adult, she moved away from home to start her own life, but returned often to assist her parents, Michelle and Manuel Canales, in maintaining the family homestead, helping others. That's what made Alicia who she was. So it was no surprise when she pursued a career in caregiving, working as a CNA at Life Care Center in Cedra Woolley at the time of her death. In an interview with Paula Zahn, Alicia's older sister, Amanda, shares a peek into Alicia's experience working at a senior assisted living facility saying, quote, they loved her. She put her heart into it and would form close relationships with people. Compassion was something natural for her. I think this really reflects on what a kind, genuine soul that Alicia must have been. You're so right. Compassion seems to be in short supply these days. So to hear about someone like Alicia who dedicated her life to helping others makes this case all the more tragic. Alicia wasn't all work and no play though. She knew how to have fun and enjoyed being outdoors, frequently hiking, camping, and even floating on the river. The only thing she loved more than her job and spending time in nature was being with her close-knit family, 
including her five siblings, Amanda, Manny, Adriana, and Allegria, and her new husband, the love of her life, Bradley McGuire, who she'd married in a beautiful beach ceremony just two months before her murder. After the wedding, the couple moved to Birdsview, Washington, and were eager to start a family of their own. But they'd never get the chance to make that dream come true. That's because Wednesday, September 20th, 2017, changed everything for the Canales McGuire family. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Alicia was staying at her sister Amanda's Everett, Washington home about a half an hour from Seattle, located in what's been described as a peaceful neighborhood off of the 3100 block of York Road. Amanda had a business trip across the country in New York and needed someone to help the live-in nanny watch her three children, a boy and two girls. When Amanda asked Alicia to babysit, Alicia didn't hesitate to say yes. Even though she just worked a 20-hour shift, Alicia knew her sister needed the support and was willing to do whatever she could to help. And everything was copacetic when the kids, the nanny, and Alicia fell asleep around midnight. That all changed a little before two in the morning when the nanny is startled awake by the sound of gunshots, or as she'd later describe it, I heard two pops and then it woke me up. She exits one of the second-story bedrooms and begins descending the stairs when she comes face-to-face with the gruesome crime scene. And it's there where the bottom of the stairs merges with the entryway that Alicia's lying face down in a pool of blood, her lifeless body wedged between the front door and a box of shoes. There's blood spatter up the walls and door as high as the doorknob. And it's quiet. The gunfire has stopped. Alicia makes no sounds or movements. The terrified nanny calls 911, desperate for help, as she tearfully recounts what's happened to the person on the other end of the phone. We weren't able to get the 911 audio, but we transcribed a part of the conversation between the nanny and the 911 operator, which Paige and I will read for you right now. Starting with Paige as the dispatcher. 911, what's your emergency? She's lying in her own blood. I don't know if I should turn her or not. So you don't know if she's conscious or not? No. If you look, can you tell if she's breathing or not? No, she's not moving. I don't know. I really don't know. Authorities and emergency medical services arrive on scene, not exactly sure what they're about to find. The nanny can't open the door for law enforcement because Alicia is in front of it. So the officers have to push their way inside. Even though they had no way of knowing whether or not the shooter is still there, possibly hiding and ready to ambush them. Deputy Wallen, one of the responding officers, actually reenacts these first few moments for Palazan's coverage of the case, saying he arrived just before 2 a.m. as he walks toward the dark family home with his gun in one hand and a flashlight in the other, illuminating the exterior of the front door. He continues saying, As I approached the house, I saw blood on the door and several bullet holes before he and his brothers in blue pushed their way into the home. And the moment they do so, it's obvious to the officer that Alicia has passed. Through tears, Deputy Wallen recounts what he saw next, telling Paula Zahn, just past where she had been shot was a child sitting on the couch, staring back at me. 
the look in his eyes and the expression on his face, clearly he was terrified. Alicia's nephew, did he witness the murder? According to the officer, yes. Turns out he had been sleeping on the couch when it happened. What about the other kids? Thankfully, Alicia's two nieces were asleep upstairs with the nanny when the ambush took place. After the scene was secured, all three children and the nanny were taken elsewhere so that the investigation could begin. Seasoned detective Ted Betts is then assigned to the case. And right away, the evidence makes it clear that the attack was an ambush, meaning whomever pulled the trigger did so with the intention of it being fatal. According to heraldnet.com, Alicia was struck a total of five times. Evidence photos show bullet holes through the doorframe by the deadbolt, a hole through the drywall next to the handle, a bullet scrape in the hallway just behind Alicia, blood outside the corner of the door, and shell casings on the floor near the garage and walkway leading to the front door. All of this physical evidence was enough for investigators to figure out how Alicia's murder took place. They believed that the shooter hid behind the garage waiting for Alicia to open the front door. And once she cracked it open to peek outside, the shooter shot four times, then advanced toward the entryway, firing two more times through the open door. There was no way Alicia could have escaped. She was overwhelmed with gunfire before she could even figure out what was going on. They were able to figure out how it happened, but do they have any idea why it happened or who pulled the trigger? Those are two questions loved ones and investigators alike were desperate to answer. Remember, Alicia didn't live there. She was only at the house to help take care of her nieces and nephew because her sister Amanda was on a business trip in New York. So right away, investigators want to know three things. One, who knew she'd be at Amanda's house that evening? Two, what was going on in her life at that moment? And three, how was her relationship with her new husband, Bradley McGuire? They questioned her family and Bradley, who investigators now admit was one of the first persons of interest due to the fact that they were married. However, it's obvious he wasn't involved and he was quickly ruled out. Bradley had an alibi working the night shift, nowhere near the scene of the crime. On top of that, he was completely devastated with the loss of his new bride. Detectives then question others who know Alicia, but quickly learn there isn't anyone who'd want to harm her, which went against what the crime scene was telling them, that this murder was intentional. There was no indication of other motives for the crime, sexual assault, burglary, etc. Nothing. Investigators then retrace Alicia's last known movements, but again, it's a dead end. With no leads, police decide to reach out to the public and canvass the neighborhood going door to door in hopes that someone may have heard something or seen something. Were they successful? Did they find anything? One neighbor heard gunshots go off, so he looked out the window and saw someone he described as six feet tall wearing dark clothes run down Amanda's driveway. However, that's as specific as he could get with the person's physical description because it was dark and he couldn't see the man's face. The neighbor also described seeing the getaway car's amber headlights flash as the car was unlocked. Again, those are all the details the witness had. And while this sighting may have been short on details, it proved something to investigators. Murder was the motive. And Deputy Art Wallen, whom you may remember from earlier in this episode as one of the first officers on scene, had a theory of his own about who was responsible for Alicia's murder. Amanda's ex-husband and father of her three children, 30-year-old Kevin Lewis. What made him think that it was Kevin? 
Deputy Wallen had responded to a number of domestic disputes between Amanda and Kevin over the course of their eight-year marriage. In conversation with Palazan, Deputy Wallen says point blank, just based on my interaction with him, I knew he was very capable of this. I absolutely believed that he was responsible. He was one of those people that made the hair on the back of your neck stand up. The Mirror reports that Amanda lived in fear of Kevin, whose emotional and physical abuse more often than not left her bruised, bloodied, and sometimes hospitalized. One such incident took place on June 21st when Amanda was savagely beaten as she exited her car after pulling into her driveway. Photos of her taken after the assault show her with a bandaged head, two black eyes, and blood running down her face, neck, and chest, along with bruises that cover her body up and down her arms, her knees, and thighs. Because it was dark and blood from her head wound gushed into her eyes, it was almost impossible for her to see who attacked her, but she knew who it was. Kevin. Exactly. But like I said, Amanda didn't actually see her attacker, so it was difficult for law enforcement to arrest Kevin. However, it led Amanda to filing a restraining order against him, and she officially ended the marriage. But neither of those actions, the restraining order and the divorce, stopped Kevin from going after the mother of his three children. In fact, the violence escalated with Kevin violating the restraining order twice in the months leading up to Alicia's murder, and Deputy Wallen had been present both times. The first time happened at four or five in the morning as Kevin lurked outside of Amanda's home trying to break in. The second violation was even more sinister with a belligerent Kevin pounding on the doors and windows trying to get inside. Amanda and the children hid in the closet as they were waiting for help to arrive. A judge then granted Amanda full custody of the children in August 2017 and ordered Kevin to pay $800 a month but that only infuriated him more. The Daily Beast reports that he responded by telling Amanda the following, come back home or else I'm gonna take you to court. I'm gonna get full custody, child support, and alimony. And if I don't get it, I'm gonna kill you. So if this deputy's theory is true, that means this was a case of mistaken identity and that Alicia's sister, Amanda, was the intended target. That's exactly it. Throughout the investigation, Amanda and the Canales-McGuire family support this theory as well. When Paula Zahn asks Amanda how she could be so certain that Kevin did this, Amanda responded, Kevin had assaulted me. Kevin had threatened to kill me. He was ex-military, so he had a lot of training. It was the only thing that made sense. Nobody would want to harm Alicia. Somebody wanted to harm me. When Kevin is brought in for questioning later that day, he learns to his surprise that his ex-wife was away on business when the shooting took place. But he doesn't give any more information and now it's up to detectives to build a case against him, which is easier said than done because they only have circumstantial evidence against him at this point. Meanwhile, Amanda and the children move into a shelter, hoping it'd keep them safe from Kevin, who was still a free man at this point. But as the mirror puts it, the nightmare was far from over. The following year, as police continue to investigate Alicia's murder, Kevin brutally beats Amanda once more. This time, Kevin's taken into custody and the assault case goes to court where Amanda testifies against her abuser, telling the court she feared for her life and that she knew without a shadow of a doubt that Kevin was responsible for killing her sister. Ultimately, Kevin was convicted of second-degree assault and sent to prison for 39 months. 
Now that Kevin's behind bars, what's going on with the case? Not much. They knew Kevin was responsible, but they couldn't prove it. So the investigation stalled until August 2018 when there was a break in the case. Thanks to a teenage girl who called the police with information about the murder. Turns out this tipster was partying with a group of friends in Spokane, Washington, when 17-year-old Alexis Hale asked the other partygoers, I can trust you, right? When they assured Alexis that she could indeed trust them, she told them that she'd been hired to kill someone in Sonomish County on York Road, explaining further that her boyfriend, 19-year-old Jared N. Phelps, was the shooter. This new information was just what the investigation needed. Both CBS and NBC report that authorities then obtained search warrants and phone records to build a case against Alexis and Jaredin. Perhaps most damning were the cell phone records, which indicated the couple drove the four-hour route to and from their home in Spokane to Amanda's home in Everett at the time of the murder. It wasn't long before they were arrested on charges of aggravated first-degree murder and first-degree criminal conspiracy to commit murder. During his police interview, Jaredin openly admitted to the murder, providing information only the murderer would know. I'm feeling really thrown for a loop. This 17 and 19-year-old couple are just really unexpected suspects to me. Did Kevin know these kids? And how did he end up hiring them for a hit? Lots of good questions to untangle here. Kevin was still very much involved. The teenager ended up telling police that his cousin, Kevin Lewis, approached him via Snapchat about getting someone, quote, out of the way. Jaredin went on to claim he only knew the target's address, but didn't know Kevin's ex-wife, Amanda, was the intended target. As for his reasoning, well, Jaredin would later testify in court that he did it for two reasons, money and street cred. He elaborated further saying, I kind of wanted to do it so I could say that I'd done it before. One, that gives me chills. Two, I've got to know how much money Kevin paid him. An affidavit states that the teenage assassin grossly negotiated the price from Kevin's original offer of $1,500 to the final agreement of $2,400 before he recruited his girlfriend, Alexis Hale, whose sister had a black pistol. The teen couple drove to Everett on the night of Alicia's murder making several pit stops along the way, once to fill up the tank of Jaredin's silver sedan, a second time to test fire the gun, which he called janky, and a third time to pick up Kevin at his bachelor pad, arriving at 1.13 in the morning. Surveillance video from a neighbor's house captured Kevin, who was wearing a white t-shirt, getting into the car. The three co-conspirators drove in silence until they arrived at Amanda's house. The Herald reports that the trio then turned around and headed back to Kevin's house, where Kevin handed his teenage cousin an envelope with 24 $100 bills. Jaredin and Alexis drove back to Amanda's home once more, this time without Kevin, and arrived at 1.55 in the morning. Per Palazan's coverage of the case, Alexis knocked while Jaredin lurked behind the garage waiting for the door to open. Once Alicia answered the door, he fired without hesitation before fleeing the scene, dropping a black leather glove on his way to the getaway car. He returned to the scene and frantically searched for the glove, but he gave up when he couldn't find it. Later that night, he posted to social media, showing off the cash with the caption, you'll never guess what I did for this check. During his trial, he later testified that he spent the money on Timberland boots, a Ferragamo belt buckle, and several tattoos. Jared and Phelps and Alexis Hale pleaded guilty to one count of first-degree murder with a firearm. 
Jaredin was sentenced to 31 and a half years, while Alexis received 15 years. As for Kevin Wall, the jury only deliberated for three and a half hours before convicting him of first-degree aggravated murder with a firearm and first-degree conspiracy to commit murder. Because he was already imprisoned for assault, he received the maximum sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge also ordered that Kevin is no longer allowed contact with Amanda, his children, Jaredin, or Alexis for the rest of his life. In a letter from Amanda that was read during Kevin's murder trial, she called him pure evil before making this remark in reference to their three children. I thought that you loved them, but someone who loved them would never want to subject them to danger and to trauma. Did you care that if it was just me at home that night, they would have woken up to find their own mother dead, lying in a pool of blood? They're healing and they're moving forward despite all of the damage that you caused. And in case you're wondering, they don't ask about you or talk about you at all. It doesn't feel right to end today's episode on a message to the killer. So let's remember Alicia for who she was. Here's a really great quote from her sister, Amanda. Alicia is what I want people to remember. She was an amazing sister, an amazing friend to a lot of people, an amazing auntie. If you or someone you know needs help, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. The number is 1-800-799-SAFE. That's where we'll leave this episode for this week. Until next time, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram at themurderdiariespodcast.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate us five stars. It helps us keep the good content flowing. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.